This Agile Life, episode 146. The Developer Experience Manifesto. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hi, I'm Lee McCauley. Hey, everyone. It's Jason Tice. And I'm John Sextro. Hello, everyone. We are back here again with uh, This Agile Life. This is episode 146, guys. It's almost 150. We might have to do something special. Of course, we probably won't get to 150 for like another year at the rate that we record. <laughs> but John, so. John, good things come to those who wait. And, and I'm so happy that this trio could be together tonight. I think I want to sit down. I, I have this vision of like watching an old Western where like the three, the three primary characters of the movie get together and right off into the sunset together. Like the three amigos. That's what I was thinking of that movie. <laughs> Okay, well, that's one way that to think like about it. That seems like an appropriate uh, trio to match us. I agree. <laughs> that is so. Jason, so what, are, what are we going to talk about today? Jason, you want? I think you wanted to talk about developer something called developer experience, and and a little further, this whole idea of autonomy and what does it mean for developers, particularly, but people on agile teams and and uh, just generally what we mean by autonomy. Well, so I, I think the way we'll start here is um, I, I guess I, in our pre-show conversation, I had uh, teased a couple things we got going on at work and something that we're talking about with a couple organizations we support is what can you do as an organization to improve the experience your developers have developing code working in your organization? So that that's our kind of our definition to get started here. And and with that said, I would love to ask uh, John and Lee, what are the first things that come to mind when I say I would love your feedback on what are the, the typical just gripes that you have about being a developer that you wish you didn't have to deal with at work, yet you do? Uh, this This is sort of a loaded question, I think, for Lee and I. We're a few years away from day-to-day development, but I think your team has started off on the right foot by by banning you from GitLab. Well, that was uh, one that, that I shared, but that's yeah. that's not a dev experience thing I was thinking about. Uh, okay. But where, okay. So, where, John, where were you going with that? I don't know. Just to, just to bash you for a moment. Oh, okay. So we have to have our warm-up activity here on the podcast <laughs> where we, we got to have some Tice bashing. I understand how this goes. Okay. Exactly. Um, on a serious... On a serious note, interruptions, I would like to, uh, I would, I think, you know, one of the things we like to do when we are doing something productive, development, development included, is get into a flow state where you're, you know, you're really rocking it, you're wired in, you're making good progress. And uh, you don't, when that's happening, you know, you don't want to be you don't want to be interrupted. Even for a bathroom break, you'll like hold it for as long as you can just so you can keep that flow state going. Okay. So I'd like to get rid of interruptions. And I like that, John, because I think where this could turn into a neat little conversation, especially if we ping pong between you and Lee, because I agree interruptions, that that is something that can definitely impact your experience as a developer, especially when 
you know, I'll own it. Hi, I'm, I'm a, I'm a director of product development. So I'm a manager. And sometimes I may choose to drop in or to ask questions when developers are doing something. And I, and I'll admit, sometimes I feel like I am an interruption. So, um, ways to have some rules and some agreements to reduce that. So there's clarity around that. So, um, that's a good one. Let's see what Lee has to say since he's been thinking about this for a while now. Well, actually, the the things I came up with all fit under the category of interruptions. I was thinking of meetings. Uh, Everybody hates meetings. Um, uh, And just people coming over and asking questions right in the middle of what I'm doing. So that's, again, it's the interruptions thing. Um, I don't know. I I think after that, some of the some of the things that really would bug me is uh, disengaged pairs. Okay, it's interesting. Our conversation is flowing into a lot of team like teaming practices, which is okay. A lot of times, so, go on, Jeb. Jason, I'm wondering um, is it is it only things that we want to not have happen? Or is it also things that we might also like to to have, like, additionally to what, what you would normally expect that you have? I think it's like, a ma- imagine you could have the perfect development environment. And, and what, I, what I'd love to do, because some of the conversations that we've been having are focused more on, I want to say, the tech side of development. Like, like all of those things that we... You know, and again, all of us, I guess, on this podcast are former developers. Um, I'll own it, but I heard John John hinted at it for himself and Lee. Is you know, like, oh, geez, we're starting a new project. We got to set up a dev environment. We got to set up our CI/CD environment. We got to get our deployment pipeline working. We've got to figure out our test architecture. We've got to figure out how do we get test data. All that stuff that if you've been on a lot of dev projects, you've probably done it over and over and over again. And sometimes it's like, okay, why do we have to do this again? And so a lot of times we talk about developer developer experience. We talk about well. What can we do to try to automate and streamline some of those things that we just do repeatedly to set up a good dev environment? You know, I think that's a that's a problem that is somewhat specific to the type of work that we do because we we don't have long running long running teams, long running feature teams. Our work is more episodic where, you know, we might do it for 6 months, we might do it for 12 months. Generally speaking and by and large, teams get spun up, they're working on a product or a project, and they do that for years sometimes. Uh, so they they don't have, they're not worrying about creating a CICD pipeline, or they're not worried about some of those, a lot of those bootstrapping issues. You do it once on a project and, and you're done with it. Now with the type of work we do, yeah, it's sort of a, it's sort of an issue. I, I certainly would wish for a, a state where I sort of hit a button and I got my my development environment set up with the best the best in breed items that our you know group or team or organization or company or whatever it is you know replace with your own your own uh, your own item in there would would just come out the other end all ready to go for me. Yeah. So, John, you're you're, you're kind of aligning to the conversations that. That I guess I'm I'm engaged with where we are talking to I want to say enterprise class environments where they the organization has found the benefit in saying 
we would like all of our teams to have some common way of working and some common technologies that enable that. And so how could we look at that almost as an experience and say, let's make the experience better for the developers so they could just get to writing software faster and not have to spend a lot of the time, a lot of their time building and rebuilding plumbing over and over again. Yeah, for sure. That would be a nice thing to have in, in an environment where you have to do it frequently. Yeah. And again, if you're, if you're in a consulting space, like I know some, some people out there are where some of that just comes along where guess what we need to, we need to set up a custom environment to match the to match the environment of the organization we're supporting. And as John, as you said, that's just part of the work. So, so again, the, to be clear here, the context that I'm talking about is: imagine you're in an organization where you have hundreds or potentially hundreds of dev teams, and you want to have some some way that it's that there's standards. Heaven forbid, I said that word between teams, but then the the experience of just working is 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 um. It's it's good. You know, it's not it's not hard is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you, you things are the technology stuff is out of the way so you can get to the fun part of delivering value and doing the work. Right. Yeah. At least I would try to pull you back in because I know we, we had a conversation about this on a real life project back when um, Lee was Lee was a developer. I was uh, out being a consultant, but we, we, we were talking about trying to set up some project bootstraps and that just that idea never took hold in the organization we were working in at the time, but it's interesting. I guess where I am, where I am now, we we talk to a lot of organizations where we see we we see value there, and we actually have had some success on both the management side and on the developer side, putting out product and services that really do help teams get started faster. Yeah, I have to say that uh, that's something I've been kind of for um, and pushing for for a long time. It, it seems to me that most developers uh, have a particular uh, thing that they really enjoy doing, whether it's front-end work or back-end work or setting up deploy machines or doing um, uh, doing AWS services or whatever. Um, and and it doesn't mean that uh, full-stack developers don't uh, can't do those things, uh, but there are certain things that they just enjoy doing more than others. And in general, um, most developers are not the ones that really just love setting up um, uh, their CI rigs that first time. They, they love the, the output of it. They, lo- they love being able to use it, but they're not necessarily the ones that uh, just really enjoy setting up all the other infrastructure stuff. So um, I think, I think this is this kind of goes into the autonomy stuff too, but um, in, in our organization for a long time, we we didn't want to dictate what uh, what software was used or what tools were used to uh, uh, for a given project, with the with the thought that that takes away some autonomy from the team, that they don't get to make those decisions. Um, and I think that there is a, a middle ground where you can put forth a, an initial setup, something to get to bootstrap, get people uh, going, to get a team going, and then, um, and, but then allow them to change it to, to whatever they want or make tweaks or whatever. Um, and I think that still provides autonomy while also giving them the freedom 
uh, of getting to work on on the stuff they really enjoy uh, right off the bat. If you if you enjoy doing deploy uh, mechanisms, great. You can still go in and tweak to your heart's content, uh, but uh, but you don't have to if you don't if you don't need to. Well, and Lee, that's one. Of, I'll share. That's one of the key things that I'm going to bring up. And I think what we're going to end up doing on our podcast tonight here is we are going to write the manifesto of developer experience because you know everything's about a manifesto. So, Lee, you have now provided what I'm going to call the first principle of our developer manifesto, or sorry, our developer experience manifesto. That is, make it easy to do things the preferred way. Yeah. So this idea so, that if I if I'm on a dev team and I need a dev environment with a CI/CD pipeline already pre-configured that I know can push out to our organization's AWS instance, I can push a button and boom, I get a dev environment and I can start coding and it's just working. I think for the most part, I agree with what Lee was saying, uh, with one exception of that. Again, in in the space that we work in, sometimes the decisions and choices about tools and technologies are driven by uh, a customer's needs or desires, which could also be driven by, you know, what standards do they already have in place? Uh, beyond that, though, I think that I agree 100% with, with what you were saying. We want to give teams the ability to choose the tools that'll do the job best for them and uh, and giving them the an ability to get started with that very quickly via some sort of a bootstrapping mechanism is, is helpful. You guys remember when we, we, we first started talking about reusable code and writing reusable code so many years ago. Yeah. How's that going, John? Tell me all about that. (laughs) Like, like, you know, there was, you always, I think in, in the organizations I was a part of at the time, you got to this point where you're like, we're not sharing anything that we're saying is going to be reusable code. And then it's like, well, we need a code librarian who will, you know, take all of the code and figure out how to how to store it and who could reuse it. And I think to a certain extent, uh, th- that's a little bit of the same problem we have here with these these uh, project bootstrap things. And it, a lot of times it's because these technologies move so quickly. You might be using one testing library today and in 18 months it's it's out of fashion and there's something new that's better that is is the best practice or you go from something like you know angular to knockout js to react and and these all these different things are just sort of constantly popping in and popping out of of vogue with companies and what they want now again if you are a big organization where you have some standards and it's like you know we are we're going to be a node.js all javascript shop and we're going to do these things and like this. But again, even in that environment, those libraries and tools change so much. You would have to dedicate like this code library and you'd have to have this like bootstrap librarian person who sort of maintained that. And you could do that. I just have never, never seen an organization invest in that way. And I think primarily it's because it is an investment and the upside to it is small, even with an organization like ours where we're, we're bootstrapping new projects very frequently. Uh, the, the benefit, the value to the cost just isn't there. So, so if you're listening to this right now, I want to, I want you to really take a moment to reflect on everything John just said, because what John 
just described is the intent. But then I want you to take a lot of the things that John mentioned about the implementation and I want you to forget them because we've moved beyond that. And um, the practice that organizations are looking to, and we can really thank um, thank Silicon Valley and in particular Google and I believe um, Apple and actually Facebook did some work here too. How do you instrument your code repos where you use analytics to automate this code librarian role so it's not a person because trust me that will not work okay that's just it's not humanly possible for people to track all the innovation that's occurring but what you should do is have a place where everyone can put their code and then you can get some analytics out of what you know what kind of code is it what open source libraries are used? Uh, can you look at the functional patterns in the code? Can you look at the business context and or the type of data that the code is processing? Those are all things you can, again, there's analytics for all this stuff. And literally, you can build an analytics-driven model as to this is how our organization is building code right now. Yeah, you you can definitely do that, Jason. Why would you want to do that? Well, I, I think, John, it's a way to, to get to where we have some emblance of standards across our, our, our different projects without, in my opinion, probably a better way to identify and find those standards than human inspection by a code librarian. Sure. And I think there are a lot of benefits, at least coming from the world of, you know, going back to our friend Carl, Carl Mueller, our security operations expert and friend, you know, his, his, uh, his saying is don't get pwned, don't get sued. So he, he would definitely be in support of like scanning all of your open source packages and saying, where are vulnerabilities? What are the, what are the open source packages that have vulnerabilities? And just knowing, just knowing what they all are. Yeah. Um, for, for the purpose of documenting that as, as, uh, as as part of the course of development and delivery to say here are all the open source things that are in here keep an eye on on the security wires to make sure that none of these things have been pwned well i understand that's one aspect of that job but the other thing is to understand the legality of it too if you're using open source and there's two different views because if you're building your own ip then it's Based upon what open source licensing you pull in, uh, you may have to give away your IP to the world, which uh, may not be the best thing for your business. Or if you're building IP on behalf of someone else, like custom development, you know, is your client happy when you use a library, which, uh, you know, is a, a copy left type mindset where guess what? You now have to um, give everything away. Um, so clarity on that is important. Um, it's not a technical issue. It's a legal issue. What else on uh, developer experience? Well, so I'm catching up here on my manifesto. So we've talked about the first principle. Uh, the second principle that I'm going to put out there is uh, innovation must happen. So as a developer, if you can't get a sandbox on demand, like, hey, give me a sandbox so I can try something out, uh, you have room for improvement. And wow, that's a high bar. Well, no. What kind, what kind of a sandbox? And and. And uh, what? how do you define on-demand? Like a day, a week, a month, an hour? Well, let's tell some fun stories here. Okay. <laughs> so once upon a time, uh, Jason and John and Lee all worked in a lab. And it was a very secure lab where we were not allowed to do 
anything. Okay, because it was a locked down dev environment. And so what did we all do when we wanted to innovate? We took our personal laptop. We went across the street to the pizza joint that had free, open, unrestricted Wi-Fi. And we did technical spikes at the pizza place, eating pizza and drinking soda for the whole afternoon. And then if we found something that worked, we walked it back into the lab after it was screened through security, which took like two and a half weeks. Remember that? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I can. uh if I can say whether or not I remember it. You know, okay, so John, they beamed your head. Okay, you were forced to forget that experience. But real life, this is a real life story that some, so I hope we have some listeners that were part of this fun journey with Jason, John, and of course, Lee, when we had to uh, basically have a uh, completely uh, separate shadow IT process so we could do innovation to figure out, hey, will this new version of an open source library make our code work better? And our at the time, the environment that we were working in was so locked down and so hardened, we had to go through this incredible workaround process, which was, I mean, it's kind of funny to talk about it in retrospect, but at the end of the day, it took us time. It actually was, it, it technically you could say there were, there were some vulnerabilities in it. Cause you know, we, we were not allowed to take our, our source code out of our lab, but we, we had to take some code samples so we could test it. And then if that was all good, we then, if we, if we knew we had a good outcome from our spike, we had a two and a half week delay at a minimum to get our change into our dev environment. And if that doesn't make you want to pull your hair out and um, and start drinking and smoking and doing other indiscretionary habits, I don't know what will. So, um, so, so I that's, think that's probably worst case scenario, right? So you 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 demand something better than that these days, uh, John. I don't know what planet you've been living on because even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, I've been out with again enterprise class organizations where hi I'm a developer and I want to I want to try something new fill out a ticket and service now uh, to request a sandbox you'll have your sandbox in three weeks see ya ouch yeah I mean that's still out there so um, again when I talk about developer experience I really think about user experience and you know I think again if you if you're a if your role at work is to maintain a dev environment. Like your job is to provide IT environments or INO environments for developers to write code and test code. And you are still working out of a ticketing system without any automation. You have an opportunity to provide better service to your customers. So, so So that one is, is you must, what was it? What was the line again? You something about demand, demand, uh, Innovation must happen. Innovation must happen. You have to be able to get a sandbox in a timely manner. I mean, dream is push button, get sandbox, you know, like self-service portal where, you know, you push a button and, you know, three seconds later, you get a link that you can log into a a VM and go and, and go crazy. And the thing that I would say about that is once you create those sandboxes, you should do something to let people actually truly use them as sandboxes, but do auditing to see what people are doing. So instead of developers having to go and ask for permission to try something, design the sandbox where it's enclaved and developers could do whatever they want. And it's not going to cause any damage when they get something that it's working. They almost can say, Hey, can you guys scan this environment to make sure it's good to go? And if it's good to go and it's, and the scan passes out, you know, stuff that John, you mentioned Carl or our colleague Carl would advocate for. Guess what? You could just merge that back into your dev environment. And then guess what? Trash the sandbox, rinse and repeat over and over again. Get the kitty letter I think out. That, I think it's, you're making it uh, a lot simpler than it would really be in uh, in real life to actually go and, and have 
uh, a sandbox that also mirrors all the different uh, dependencies that you might have in a moderately complex project. Well, the, I'll tell you, the, the question, and that's part of, I, I think people say, because um, I've had people, they ask me, they say, because I've been talking about the sandbox thing for, um, I want to say about five years now. And I'll, I will share my personal inspiration for learning about sandboxing. It does come from our fun and our fun times in the pizza shop, guys, because uh, that was insane what we had to do in that environment, is um, you've got to have good automation through your whole environment. So... I want to say sandboxes are like one of the last things you automate, unless you just want to give people the quick, you know, here, here's a, you know, here's a Linux VM. You can go hack around them if you want to. I mean, those are easy, but you've got to say, I under, have to understand how do I build my dev environment in an automated fashion or how do I build prod in an automated fashion, you know, using whatever, whatever tool you're using or whatever platform. And then once you have that, it's typically a, it's typically less effort to to say to take that that initial automation and say, okay, how do I create a another instance of that environment, enclave it off, you know, so that's just segmentation, and then say, okay, here, John, here's your play space. I think technologies like Kubernetes and Docker these days are are getting close to that promise. Yeah, they are. They are. But the key with that is saying that as a you know really number one as an organization combined with your engineering effort and your dev teams saying we are going to start deploying, you know, using, using containers, Kubernetes, you know, pick your platform and we can talk about all of them if you want to, but we have to commit to saying we want to take the people out of our, out of our deployment events, replace them with automation. And then realize once you have that baseline automation established, you know, Hey, make another spin up another production environment for me and then give it to John so we can play with it. I mean, that's a trivial activity once you achieve that base level of automation. Okay, so what else on the manifesto? Okay, so the third one then that we got up to was the talking about dev analytics. So if, which goes back to instrumenting your code repo to say, you know, what what code is in it? What does it do? Is it secure? And then collectively, I want to say not, not as a centrally governed function, but as a team saying, hey, if we're part of this company and we're all developing applications that are supposed to work together, maybe I should look at the repo to see what other people are doing. And that might inspire me to align efforts. So is align aligning efforts is the next item on the manifesto? Um, it could be. I mean, I think the manifesto might end here. <laughs> Manifesto. Got to start somewhere. But but let me ask you this, because I know, John, you asked yeah. about autonomy. And the things that I'm suggesting here are intended to give people autonomy within guardrails. If I go back to my last statement where I was mentioning what's going to motivate developers to want to have um, – want to want to understand if they can work with the teams around them um, – how does that happen in an autonomous environment? Maybe Lee can, can weigh in first on this one. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, that's kind of the situation I'm in right now. I've got uh, five teams, four of which are co-located. And um, I, I think the first answer to that question is make sure that there are no roadblocks in between and not even roadblocks. Roadblocks are, are too harsh. Um, not any inconveniences in between uh, people on different teams to be able to uh, to talk to each other. 
Can, can you tell us more about what you mean by an inconvenience? Yeah. So um, it could be something harsh, like I'm physically in another another uh, state, right? Uh, it could be something as simple as um, they're across the they're across the floor from me and I have to get up and walk a decent distance, right? That's an inconvenience as opposed to um, I can take a couple of steps and they're right there, or I can just kind of bob my head up and say, Hey, uh, John, can you come over and look at this? So you want some, uh, just some ability to communicate with people on the team. Is that what you're saying? Uh, and like no cubicles, no. And between teams. Okay. Yeah. No closed, no closed team rooms, open space. Yeah, exactly. Um, something, anything, anything where I psychologically um, have to weigh the the cost of uh, of me having that communication, that face to face communication with somebody, or or a communication that is appropriate for whatever I'm doing. Um, if I have to weigh that cost and it's, uh, it's at all heavy, um, then I'm less likely to do it. It's about probabilities, right? It's not that I won't get up and walk all the way across the, the, the floor or that I won't um, pick up a phone and call somebody in another state. Um, but I'm less likely to do that, and therefore it happens less often. Okay, so can, you, can I can I work yeah. out my manifesto here? I, I'm going to try it, Lee. Here it is. It's principle number four. Understand what inconveniences others, knowing that each person themselves determine what is an inconvenience to them. That oh is my. a good way to put it, yeah. Because the, using the example, what made me think of Lee, using the example you said, it's like someone don't want to get up and walk 50 feet across the office. Hi, I'm the guy that gets up and runs, you know, five miles on the road outside my house every morning because I want to work out. So for me, get up and walk it over is not an inconvenience, but that's my bias or my, my preference. So it's important to really, in this case, as you know, to be a good developer, have a good developer experience to show some empathy and saying it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what that other person thinks and how they feel and what their preferences are. And you need to align to that. Yeah. The other thing that I think is interesting is in those situations, you probably can't ask people and say, hey, is this an inconvenience for you? Because they don't want to say it's an inconvenience for them to walk across the room. Um, it, it's more again, it's more about the probabilities. That's interesting. I'm, I'm worried about. I'm worried about something, Jason. Okay. Um, this item in the manifesto associated with Lee's point, which I totally agree with, and actually, Lee, there's there's something called propinquity, um, which is, I guess, factors that Crap, affect. I have to get out my dictionary. Yeah, fa- factors affecting your, your desire to want to communicate it based on how far away or how convenient uh, things are to you. And so there's hard data around this. Yeah. So tonight's episode of This Agile Life is sponsored by Marriott Bonvoy because John must have stayed in a Marriott hotel and watched that. uh, Watch the TED talk on the TED channel in the hotel. No, John wrote a blog post about propinquity about 12 years ago. Oh, so John wants to give a TED talk that will be showing in a repeated loop in the Marriott hotel on the TED channel. So I think I should. I think I should. I think This Agile Life should be on that channel. 
Okay, well, so the Satchel Life needs to go give a TED Talk and then for her to get into the rotation on the Marriott Bonvoy TED Talk. <laughs> okay. Okay, a, enough of the Marriott mouthful. fun. Well, one of the, so one of the things, so there's, that was, my point was, before we, we, we got off a little track, was that there's hard data around these things, especially that one. And Jason, your, I think, point, point in the manifesto here was that people individually get to decide. And in a lot of cases, I'm in agreement with that. But when there's data or there's hard science about something, I think maybe we should look to that data, look to that science to help us drive and, and motivate that. So if your preference, Jason, is to uh, is, is to walk great distances and run around because you have extra energy uh, in order to do things, okay. Uh, but I wouldn't want your decision to impact me. Uh, but I... I would like the sort of the a, a good decision to be made in a reasonable way that would impact my my group, and then there would be some some good reasoning, some good thought, some good science behind that. So it's not just like, well, you know, just because we're going to get rid of all the walls, and just because we're going to jam people close to you so you can talk to them more, it's like let's have a good reason for doing these things, and not, and in some cases not entirely make it the decision of, of the individuals. And I think what that does, and it sounds like it's taking autonomy away. And, and in this case, probably. But what I think is important about autonomy, and I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on this more, is to, is to, put, some, to, to put some boundaries around areas of delivery, execution, the work that we do, and say, don't mess with this stuff. Don't worry about this stuff outside of these boundaries. We're going to we're going to take care of those. Um but everything in here go crazy. You figure it out. You you know, you have you and you have entire the entire autonomy available here within that boundary box to go and say knock it out. Make it best it can be for you. I, I, I would take that one step further though, John, and say um if you want to change the bounding box, you should have a path to be able to do that. Um, it's just not uh, something you can do on your own uh, necessarily. May, or maybe it is. It's just not um, uh, not something that we give it to you out of the box as an initial pattern. I like that. I, I definitely want there to be a, for people to be able to have a conversation I used to uh, coach this team many moons ago and they would very often say to me, Lee, you know, we don't have any ability to self-organize here. We have no autonomy. What this person was, and it was really one person that was very outspoken. And the person was very outspoken about a particular aspect of how we were doing agility. And it was around story writing, backlog grooming, uh, and prioritization of work. The person wanted us to basically go back to a more waterfall approach of writing requirements documents and getting those approved as a spec by by someone. And that was what they were referring to. They're like, we don't have the autonomy to do this. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to let the team reorganize itself into a waterfall team again. That's just that's outside of the boundary box. I, but, I think the difference I think the difference in that case, though, is that. You, you shouldn't say no. You should say, okay, um, here are the reasons why I think that's a bad idea. 
what are your arguments for it? It's it, nothing should be out of bounds to have that discussion. And if you can't argue that a particular practice or a particular method that you're using is valuable to the team and to the to ultimately the customer, then um, maybe you should reevaluate it. Agreed. And and I wasn't uh, I wasn't pointing that out to say that. Um, I was unhappy that the conversation was occurring. I just wanted to point out that sometimes there are things where it's like, let's, we, we, we can discuss it, but is there, is, is there really going to be value to discussing it? So I, I don't know. I guess there are, uh, there's, I definitely have a willingness to, to probe and find out, push the boundaries on the, on that boundary box. But the, my focus was to try to say make, and by the way, make the what that box bounds around as large as possible to give the team as as many things as you you're comfortable giving them for for them to manage autonomously and limit the things that they they couldn't um to a small number that you know maybe it's like organizational things space things um you know it's very expensive things like buying everybody new computers or things of that nature but give them as much autonomy as you can afford to right Okay, so management wants to chime in here because management will say that autonomy without guardrails to constrain it to some extent is a, um, let's call it, that's an interesting experiment in management and business if if you'd like to try it. Thoughts? Well, we are, we are, we are sort of constraining it, aren't we? We said with this bounding box. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so the metaphor that I use for autonomy is to think about guardrails on the side of a road, where if guardrails are well, prop- my metaphor is better. So you know, oh, we're gonna have a metaphor <laughs> war now. Jeez, I mean, it's John. the same thing, isn't it? Though, uh, it is. But I thought I'd give some examples. Okay, um, great. Which which guardrails to me on are- the side of a road. Well, Start okay. There. So, and I'm trying to think about things for teams and or this might be inspired by recent activities at work. So, uh, how about this? I will play the role of management here, being a director of product development, and um, share some of these are real life. So, okay. team shall provide a weekly demo or release event or inspection point of work completed. Okay. What do you think? Uh, so, and is the team saying, well, we don't want to do it at that cadence? We don't want to... No, uh... It varies. That's not the point. I'm saying so as a as a and to me this. Yes, I'm speaking as a manager here, but I'm speaking in the name of safety for everyone involved, management, the company, the team saying that once a week we should be able to circle the wagons and say, hey, check out what we've done. And that should, in my opinion, since we're building working software, it should be a demo. And if we haven't if we haven't built anything in a week, um, well, hopefully we've got something else to show off that ex- that says that hey, you've, you're self organizing, you're working, you were here for a week. What did you do? Um, yeah, I see what you're saying. So I, I think you the way you would approach that is to start off with the team saying how frequently and uh, do we think it would be reasonable to expect us to demo working software, G- given that and and say. Maybe a week is a good starting point. Let's, can we do a week? Can we go from, you know, so just to throw something out there to get the ball rolling. 
Well, the, and, the, the real life, if you think about it from a business perspective, suppose something goes awfully wrong and the team is self-organizing and they just make some really bad decisions and they, they basically completely drive the car into the ditch. Um, you know, my, my belief is if you drive the car in the ditch for one week, it's going to cost less to recover than if I drive the car in the ditch for two weeks or three weeks. And now I'm really in the mud there. And it's going to be a, the car is totaled now and I've got to pay to fix it all. Uh, I agree with what you're saying and I'm, I'm on board with it. I'm just saying let's get input from the team up front because there could be reasons why uh, it's very difficult to demo every week. Maybe there are, are uh, things that are outside of the team's control that make weekly demos arduous. And it takes, you know, a day on the front and a day on the backside just to pull the demo off. So it's like, okay, is if there aren't all things being equal, it would seem like an okay, okay place to start. But again, if I just roll in there and go weekly demos, boom, done, you know, that doesn't feel very much like autonomy. It's like how free, because maybe the team goes, Hey, we can demo stuff at the end of every story. And maybe that's well twice a day or um, twice a week or something along those lines. Well, or, or John, what I do want to call out in the conversation here is what you just mentioned. If it's really hard to demo, hmm, that smells a lot like automating those software deployment events. That's one of those things we just mentioned a while back about good developer experience. So the reason I, the reason I am focusing on that here is to say that I believe there is a direct correlation between having good automation and then being able to have more autonomy because it makes your development less risky. Because it's easy to release, it's easy to test, it's easy to stand up a sandbox, and if you could do that, then it's easier to have it's easier to have autonomy to to try things out. Yeah, and and I don't disagree with any of that. I'm just pointing out um, that's that there are things with outside of the realm of like infrastructure automation, environment automation, and, and the like that might limit how frequently you can can reasonably demo. Now. Um, as a as a, a a person very a big a, st- a strong proponent of agile, I would want to dig into all of those reasons and start to tear it apart and go, why can't we release every six minutes? You know, uh, but you I think you have to you have to ask the team and deal start dealing with reality first, and then dig deeper and say, hey, looks like we can only make it happen every two weeks. That's a good start. Two weeks is a long time. Let's try and figure out if we can shorten that window and and give the team the autonomy to figure out how to how to how to shrink that window. So, John, thank you because you have given us principle number five of the Developer Experience Manifesto, which is guardrails may start as suggestions, but they need to be uh, they they need to allow feedback for what is realistic. Well. I don't want my responsibility for that because I think you've twisted what you said and what I said to come out with what you want. Oh, really? <laughs> like I would never do that. Wow, John. Which thanks. You want your you you want to say you get to make a recommendation, and we're starting with that. I'm saying as a manager, I think it's okay for management to say, "Hey, here's our goal." It would be awesome if as all of our teams and our big, 
big, raw, big enterprise company. All of our teams can release their software at least once a week to production. And if you're a listener and you work in a big enterprise environment, I would love to know how your company, I mean, imagine if you talk about wanting to enable transformation and innovation, imagine that every single system in your organization could be updated once a week. Okay. Let, I let's think ask, it would change the, let's uh, so ask Lee to help us out here for a second. Cause um, he, he might be able to arbitrate on this. Okay. Oh crap. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure what you're wanting me to arbitrate here. Um, the, I think, John, what you're saying is that uh, you shouldn't start with a pronouncement. Instead, you should get uh, feedback and suggestions from the team as to what your starting point is based on the reality of the situation. Right. That's right. what I'm saying. And or what I will say is let's let's apply a persona. How to be the CTO that the dev that the dev teams uh, like versus the CTO that the dev teams hate. I think the CTO could come in and he could say, guess what? I want to establish an organization imperative that over over time, we want to increase the frequency that all our teams can release their software. I think that's a great idea. But notice you didn't say uh, uh, we'll release it every week. Well, that's what I said. I said that's that's the kind. So the the organization leadership should establish. Well, leadership should, and in my opinion, um, well, they can, and they, in my opinion, they should establish some kind of goals like that. But then they need to be open. And the things where, again, mistakes that I've watched senior executives do in their careers, and I've watched them, you know, get you know bad stuff happen to them as a consultant is. You know, CTO says all my dev teams will release every two weeks. And then they, they, you know, they make the list of the bad teams. Like these are the bad teams that can't release. And then they start doing punitive things to those teams because they can't release. And then that's just bad. That's inhumane, in my opinion, mainly because most of the reasons why those teams can't release are legacy technology, bad governance, bad leadership, bad management, things that are way beyond the control of the team. So, and, and probably they weren't given the, the resources uh, or the time to actually affect those changes that yeah. would need to happen. Yeah, it's just bad management. It's like, again, as a senior leader, you, you, you're you saying one thing, but then you don't realize the realities of it. So so to close this out here, guardrails are necessary for all time. And I got a few more examples here, but they need to enable conversation. So they're not mandates, they're goals. And then I think they become a way that teams can say, well, how can we achieve that? And then maybe to what you're saying, John, how could we exceed it and knock it out of the park? And guess what? We can release every six seconds, you know, yeah. because you're building microservices, you know, which is awesome. And, and I think it would be great for a, an organization or a CTO in an organization to say, we want to, we want to demo as frequently as you can. We suggest if it's possible, use one week as that, or as that increment or whatever that they come up with. Right. But um, like Lee said, not to necessarily make it uh, make it a hard and fast rule and definitely and no, definitely and no wall of shame, no wall of shame and uh, provide people with. Well, I, I mean, I don't know what a wall of shame is, but it sounds bad. Um, John, you did a podcast on it like back in the 20s, like it was episodes where we talked about the test coverage mandate test coverage where it used to work. Yeah. No, it was the 1920s, right? No, it was episode, it was an episode 20 somewhere, but <laughs> Okay, let me give um, let me give a few other autonomy ideas here. These are guardrails. Um, this is for devs. Since we're working, especially for on a team, all of our code should be in the code base or in the repository. 
no secret folders, secret repos, you know, where, hey, I got my secret stash of stuff over here that no one else on the team can see because ideally the team should be able to see all the source code for the product. And even if you didn't work on it, you can then go kind of look around, look at some pull requests and ask questions and and have a have some shared code ownership. With the exception of things that should truly be secret, like uh, encryption keys, passwords, etc. Well, that's secure. That's secure. Well, that's not the code. That's a that's a configuration asset. So, infrastructure is code. Yes, and actually, a, a rule uh, here's a here's a guardrail. I'm going to write down here. Um, no touch CI items. So, if you have configuration items that are necessary for you to sign your code, a challenge to accept as a team is guess what. No human touches those in a release process. Has to be automated. Okay. You guys don't like that, huh? I don't know. Um, I mean, great. I don't disagree with any of that. All right. Um, I'm not going to have to live up to this manifesto. Uh, what do you mean? I'm going to I'm gonna build my, my <laughs> super dev environment. I'm going to sell it to you, John, and you're going to have to use it whether you like it or not. Ah. <laughs> new product. It's my new product. There goes my autonomy. What do you mean? It's going to have sandbox on demand. Use it. So analytics, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Uh, let me let me try one more here. Um, so as an autonomy, as a person on a team, you should invite collaboration and provide feedback on work that is done by others. Like, so, um, are you talking about uh, within the team or an? as a, like a demo. So like a, more of a code review versus a demo. I would say it's all levels. It's both. Okay. So again, as a team ways that you have autonomy with your peers would be to say, Hey, guess what? Here's what I'm working on. Or here's what we paired on today. You got questions, you know, ask, you know, check it out, ask us questions, you know, either in person or at a code review or, you know, comment on a pull request. Um, well, just putting the word autonomy in front of it doesn't necessarily make it an autonomy thing. I mean, wh- how, where is the autonomy in this? Well, it's saying that I, you're going to, again, we're going to have our goals. We're going to have our work to do our stories to implement. And people on the team are going to be trusted to do the best they can for the work that they, they pull on the board. And these, I guess I'm calling these guardrails or these practices are ways that as a team member, it's like, okay, Hey, I can go start a new story or I can look at the pull request that Lee just that Lee has out there and I can give him some feedback or ask him questions so that I understand um, what Lee did. And maybe I learn a little bit more about, you know, what Lee's been working on. So we can we're a better team. Does it make sense? So for yeah. us, uh, pairing is essentially uh, one of the key ways that we do that. Um, obviously, it's not the only way. Yeah. And to be fair, it's like you you could say. You know, autonomy, I mean, pairing is something that it takes two people to opt. It takes two or more people to opt into it because you can have as actually that's one of the things John said early on about um, actually, though, Lee, you said it, the disengaged pair where someone's just pairing there, that someone's sitting next to you, but they're really not actively pairing. Mm-hmm. And that's partially my fault, too, if I'm in that pair and they're disengaged. And, well, and the autonomy here comes in with in by the fact that I can choose whether to uh, review a pull request or to start a new story. Is that the autonomy? So to me, the guard will be reminding saying, yes, you could start something new, but would there be more, I want to say indirect value to then doing something that's not so obvious? Yeah. And 
And it, what's the man? What's the line item in the manifesto again? I haven't written one for that yet. Well, because, it is to be- because he, he, listen, you, you know, I don't think you necessarily get to make that decision all the time. It depends on how you've decided your team would work. But if there's an item to the right on the board, right, we're going to pull typically on a Kanban team, we're going to pull from the right um, and, and limit our work in progress. And the smart decision, the smarter decision following that guidance would be to pull something from the right, the pull request to review rather than start something new. Have I taken away your autonomy though? Uh, I don't think you have. I just think you, it's, I, I see these guardrails. They're kind of like rules. It's like, cause sometimes at least I think it, I think in an autonomous environment, at least the way that my brain works. And again, maybe my brain's messed up here is I think there's always an obvious choice. Like, Oh, here's what I really want to do. It's like going to a restaurant where if, if there's a kind of food that you like, you probably say, Oh, I really, really, really want to order it. But then they, they throw the menu in front of you and the menu inherently gives you other options and choices that well, hopefully, if it's a good restaurant, they're all good. And so it inspires you to say, well, okay, I could do what I really want, or I could do something else, which may not be my first instinct, but it is something that is still within the rules of how we're executing. Does that make sense? I think so. Because my concern is if you don't have those guardrails, autonomy can sometimes erode into, well, this is what John wants to do. This is what Lee wants to do. And this is what Jason wants to do. And even if we have the, a common goal that we're working towards, unless we have that, those kind of guardrails that remind us of all the, all the different ways we could engage beyond our preferred way, it, it, it means we don't crash into the ditch. Or I don't crash into the ditch in a way that really bothers you. Like say, say I do something wrong or just something that's out of line it's I get some reminders before I do something that has a negative impact on yourself, John or on Lee. Yeah. I think the benefit of uh, the benefit of having guardrails could be also that it allows us to fail safely and fail sap <laughs> to fail safely and fail fast. Yeah. Cause it would, it would define things like, you know, when you're crashing off the road, like, Oh, Oh crap. I've, I haven't given anyone feedback this week because that's one of our guardrails or oh crap we haven't we haven't tried to demo our code in the last three weeks you know and is that okay you know how do we know we're still doing the right thing if we haven't demoed the code you know yeah so are you ready to uh, put this out on uh autonomymanifesto.com or that uh, would require too much work i think it might end up on linkedin first so, what, what, so i only got up to or is it developer experience the developer experience manifesto.com no i'll throw it out there somewhere um so I, I got five principles so i what's funny i don't for the for the sake of time i don't want to run them down now unless you want me to john but i will um i will take the five principles that we have and i will um i will write them up and make something pretty and i can do that as um as we're in post production of the episode here, I think I think you should uh, first put them on our Slack channel, oh, this geez. Agile Life Slack channel, and uh, and debate, and we we can debate them more. Want to debate? Oh, geez. Oh, or or oh, wait till the picks tonight. The picks are going to be awesome. All right. So so what have we achieved tonight? Um, I want to say thank you, uh, John and Lee, for uh, humoring my desire to talk about developer experience. I, I appreciate the feedback, John, you provided um, about, again, my focus on kind of automation and, and thinking about, you know, push button, get sandbox. 
and how that is maybe uh, aspirational, but I have seen environments where it does exist. So um, yes, if you're a doubter out there, no unicorns do exist. Feel free to contact me if you want to learn more. And um, But to be fair, those unicorns only exist because engineers focused on saying, we want to provide sandboxes, we want to provide a good experience, and we really want to approach managing our dev environment like a product where we care about the people that use it every day and we value making it a good experience for them. And the management structure has to uh, be willing to give them the time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get push button, get sandbox overnight. That's um, or, or by the, well, actually um, just to be completely clear and why I think this topic has relevance is um, it, Push button get sandbox overnight does exist. It's called Shadow IT. And next thing you know, that's when half of your dev teams are building and deploying to AWS because AWS and, and Google Cloud and everyone else does a pretty darn good job of saying, hey, put your credit card in and we'll give you all the sandboxes you want. And oh, by the way, they've got pretty good tools and good stuff that devs like using them. So um, the challenge is how could you provide a similar experience for applications that you're not going to deploy to AWS or Google or Google cloud or whatever. So I can't help, but think that this is exactly how the agile manifesto got written. This week's hottest picks. Okay. My pick is a movie and it's the one we referenced early on when we were talking about us riding off into the sunset, three amigos with Martin short, Steve, uh, Steve Martin and Chevy Chase, great movie. I love it from my uh, from my youth. You should check it out if you haven't seen it. Yes, and it's a popular agile teaming pattern, a three amigos pattern. How about that, Jason? What do you have for your list of picks that are well, always too John long has- and off the outside our guardrails for? What do you mean? I'm here to sell. Picks are all about (laughs) selling. Welcome to the trade show part of this Agile life. So uh, so I've been reading some books lately, um, like we all have. But a book that I'll I'll plug out there is by Phil Jones. It's exactly what to say. And it talks about the magic, the magical uh, magic words of influence and impact. So um, and it's interesting. I have to admit, I read it and I realized there's things that I say that I'm working on that impacts people's understanding of what I really mean. So uh, do check it out. And of course, like all the books out there, Phil's got a website where you can, um, you can, he's got guides and activities and, you know, all kinds of fun work, you know, workshoppy stuff you can do to put his practices into action. So again, exactly what to say by Phil Jones. If there are things that you say on the podcast that, that people want to give you feedback on, can they, can they tweet the agile factor? Oh, please. I'd love that. So, and hey, Phil Jones, we plugged your book. I'd love it. Listen to this and give me feedback, you know, since you wrote your book. So I'd love it. I'll go one. We could have him come on the show and talk about his book. Give me some coaching. So, nah. um, all right. So another product I'm going to plug I, that I, we're using. So today we talked a little bit about virtual teams. So for those that haven't ever heard of it or seen it, a product that is out there is called Sococo. And what it is, it's a software product. It's a SaaS, it's a, a SaaS type offering where it provides a virtual office where you actually can, you know, set up. It's got cubes. It's got pairing stations. It's got team rooms, war rooms. It's got a lunchroom. It's got an outdoor area. You actually could design the whole office and then you actually can 
you get the experience of like walking through the office and dropping in on people. And so, uh, we are using this, um, in a, one of our, in actually several of our product development efforts and it's proving to be fun. So for those of you, if you're on a virtual team or you work remotely and you haven't checked out Sococo, it is definitely worth the free trial for a month to see if it, it's works for your team. And, um, it's cool. So check that out. Yeah, I can I can plus one on that one. I've got one of my teams that's a virtual team using Sococo, and it works quite well. It's a nice yeah, and, nice and Lee, I believe your team is in the same shared office space as where one of our teams is. And so even though Lee and I are working different business units in different locations, our people could actually bump into each other in the hallway, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will also come over the top with a a, a pick on that. John York and I. Uh, did a podcast for the Worldwide Technology Software Development Podcast where we talked about our virtual office, and he talks at length about the tools that they use, including Sococo. Yes, and so last but certainly not, keeping with the long tradition of always plugging a live event. So um, Agile Midwest 2019 is coming up in September 25-26 in the St. Louis, Missouri area. So this is September 2019. If you're listening to us and it's 2020, I'm sorry you missed it. But we got a conference program with 40 sessions, including, as John mentioned, John York talking about uh, Sococo and virtual office patterns at various companies and a bunch of other um, interesting sessions going on. And one thing that I will float out there now, especially tonight is uh, we're doing a new thing at Agile and West this year. It's called the Agile Lounge. And our inspiration for this comes from the Audacious Salon, which is um, for those that haven't been to the big Agile conference, that's a kind of a unique session, a series of sessions they hold where y'all sit in basically in a big circle and you talk, you, you talk about challenging and advanced topics. So, um, so I think, uh, developer experience might be something that we talk about in our Agile Lounge. And uh, we're going to talk about, uh, estimating some of the fun topics that are really, I think really tend to be more um, collaborative and, and, you know, talking through things as opposed to just presenting slides because there are no slides. So um, anyways, so if you are looking to attend a fun agile conference here in the St. Louis, Missouri area or the Midwest, check out agile Midwest, September 25, 26, 2019. And we'll put a link to the conference website in our show notes. Come, uh, Check it out. I don't think anyone else from our podcast is going to be there. Shame on y'all, but I'll be there. Come hang out with me at the conference. And last but not least, Lee, what do you have? I got nothing. He's got nothing. Follow Lee on Twitter, the Agile Atheist. (laughs) Wonderful. All right. Next time I'll gift you a pick, Lee. You can plug the conference. Come hang out with us. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and keep living this Agile life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.